there are donors all around us. If we do anything from a crowdfunding to a campaign to digital effort, um, you know, email, uh, whatever we do, we can find donors. But finding the right donors is the is the hard part. So yeah. the answer to that would be that we're going to look for people where there's an intersection of passion and um, for the cause, if not our specific organization, because they may not know us yet. Um, right. And they have the resources to do something about it. You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier, so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results. Now... Here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver, brought to you by Yachtme, the virtual events platform 100% free to nonprofits, and Pod Pro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Thanks for tuning in. I'm your host, Kev Kayat, and we are now in season four. So make sure to dial into the Growing Back catalog on your favorite podcast provider or watching my YouTube channel. Remember to like, share, and subscribe. Just a quick reminder, you are actually the nonprofit problem solver. My guest and I are trying to make your job a little bit easier by sharing practical, tactical expertise that you can put straight into action. This podcast was recorded live, as it's always been, and you are invited to join the live recordings every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific. RSVP at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. You can find me at kevkayat.com as well as Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. Join the Nonprofit Problem Solver Facebook group and the Nonprofit Problem Solver Club on Clubhouse to join in live discussions with an ever-growing group of nonprofit experts to get practical, tactical advice on being the best nonprofit entrepreneur you can be. If there's one question that immediately identifies someone as being in the nonprofit world, it's how do I find donors? This is the fundamental problem that nonprofits face every single day. So who better to talk to about this question than donor cultivator extraordinaire, Jay Frost. We had to wait a few extra minutes while Jay wrangled with Chrome and then Firefox to recognize his camera, but the wait was well worth it. Listen to Jay explain where donors are and which donors you should be looking for. And now we are live. <laughs> Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast, episode 50, believe it or not. Finally here. So we've we've uh, had a little technical switch to our platform for the uh, live podcast. It's always been live. And we've we've done Zoom and we've done Yachtme and we've done uh, now we're back to StreamYard going live to social media platforms. Uh, Facebook, except today, <laughs> uh, LinkedIn and YouTube. And uh, let me um, welcome my uh, guest for episode 50, Jay Frost, none other than Jay Hello. Frost. Welcome, sir. Great to be here, um, finally. Thank you for persevering through the uh, technical challenges of getting your, your live camera feed going. Yes, you could have seen, uh, you could have heard me, but you wouldn't have seen me. Maybe that would have been better, I'm not sure, but. No, I, I don't know. It's, you know, everything's remote these days, so it's useful to uh, to have the uh, face-to-face, isn't it? Um, yeah. Okay, so 
let me um, just uh, remind folks that um, this uh, podcast is uh, weekly. It's live every Wednesday, uh, brought to you by YachtMe, the virtual events platform, which is free to nonprofits, and you should consider it for your virtual or hybrid event. And also PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. So uh, any of your audio or visual needs, contact my buddy Glenn at podproaudio.com. Okay, so the one question I think anybody who's working in nonprofits asks themselves, asks their friends and neighbors, asks their colleagues, asks coaches and consultants and, uh, and people like us is, how do I find donors? <laughs> the, it's like the number one question right. if you're in nonprofits, is it not? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I can't think of anyone better to answer that than you, Jay. Uh, can you just remind everybody a, a bit about you, a bit about what you do and how they can find you online? Uh, yes. Um, and, and there there are several ways that people can find me. So I'll, I'll list those uh, a little bit later. But just a little bit about myself and why I like talking about this subject with people, um, which is that I've been, well, first of all, I've been in the field since the 1980s. So that was the last century for those who are counting. And the, uh, the, the environment was very different then. Uh, I, I began in, you know, in the field of giving and then um, came over and worked as a fundraiser uh, on a capital campaign. And back in those days, it, it was not as it is now where you have access to lots of information. So um, at your fingertips, the advantage and disadvantage of that change, and there, there believe it or not, are a couple of disadvantages are that we haven't necessarily um, utilized the wealth of information that we, that's gathered every single day. I can't remember the um, uh, the rate of growth, but it's it's astounding and it, of information available to us. But it's done in an uncurated fashion. So as much as we all love and hate Google, um, Google is not a librarian. And it, it what it means is they're obviously delivering information to us that can be helpful, but it can also lead us down the rabbit holes we've all been experiencing all of our professional careers, whether it's one week or 10 years or 100 years. And so a lot of my career has been trying to figure out where are the people and the institutions, largely, of course, founded on individuals who are interested in the same things and have resources to give. And so while in the sense uh, over my career arc from being a grant maker to a fundraiser to a service provider and uh, a consultant and advisor today, um, it, much of that has become easier to find out where people are and what they're about, what they care about, and how much money they have. At the same time, because of the wealth of information, um, I think it's become more important for us to focus than ever because um, we, we can risk myopia, but what, the greater risk in the era of, of Googleization is that we waste too much of our time looking for opportunities that aren't real when in fact some very real opportunities are usually right in front of us and those people are feeling ignored. So that's much of my work. There's a, there's a risk of uh, fear of not knowing or fear of not knowing the latest thing yeah. or fear of overlooking something which might others, others might consider obvious. Right. Uh, and, and we sort of indulge the overwhelm sometimes with when it comes to information. Well, yeah, I, I think all of that's true. And I, I also uh, think sometimes people will use it unintentionally as a way to avoid those very real human contacts. So, you know, it's, it's, it's not just COVID. Although COVID maybe is feeding some of those tendencies as well to think that we can do everything um, digitally 
And much of what we can do, we can do digitally. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a troglodyte here. This is, this is, this is the medium we have to work with. And we want to raise money, but also if we want to advance our mission. But we cannot rely entirely on this because all the big money that we're ever going to raise, no matter who your organization is, is done in a very personal fashion. It can be done from a thousand miles away, but it needs to be very personalized. And so um, we have to really focus on that. Find the people, get to know them, not just look for opportunities that are very far away and people who might be interested in the same things, but we don't really know anything about them. So the, the digital the digital technical question is how to leverage it for what still need to be very real human relationships. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Great. Okay. So let's 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 launch into our question. I, I don't want to ask you how many times you've been asked the question, <laughs> how do I find donors? <laughs> well, we knew this would be a, a, a great topic because it is, as we as, as we've established, one of the most fundamental things. So when when people do ask you this question, what is your typical response? Um, I guess what I first do is I ask a lot of questions because donors are everywhere. So the easiest answer would be, uh, you know, open your eyes. They're, they're, yeah. <laughs> but I would never say that because that's, that's very weird. There was an old joke in, in Hollywood years ago when Robert Redford was, was a, a popular and younger man that um, you could throw a stone in Venice, California, and hit somebody who looked like Robert Redford. You know, it was referring to all these blonde white guys. Anyway, yeah. um, not knocking his talent or anything. But, but the point is the same with donors, in that there are donors all around us. If we do anything from our crowdfunding to a campaign to digital effort, um, you know, email, uh, whatever we do, we can find donors. But finding the right donors is the, is the hard part. So yeah. the answer to that would be that we're going to look for people where there's an intersection of passion, and uh, for the cause, if not our specific organization, because they may not know us yet. Um, right. And they have the resources to do something about it. Now, we will have tools, and we can talk about this later, that can help us to do some prediction about people who may amass that wealth later or relationships we can build uh, for people who don't have either all that commitment yet, that affinity, or those resources yet. But for today, uh, organizations can look at very specific um, uh, it, it, not indicators, but wealth characteristics those, that are very available for us using a variety of platforms, many of which are free, some of which are aggregated and, and come at a charge, but it's actually pretty cheap these days, as long as we're looking through the prism of the people who care about the same things. So in other words, we can't just look for people who care about the same things but have no money. And we can't just look right. for people who have a lot of money but don't care. And I know that that's very obvious, but I think that's the missing link in much of what we do. I hear continually still the same conversations about let's just look for the people who have something, you know, like who is our Oprah? Um, and right. then, you know, but we don't know Oprah, but we'd love to have her. Well, wouldn't we all? And then the other, which is, um, no, we're only going to look at the people who have a demonstrated interest in this cause. But but 99 percent of the people in anybody's constituent file do not have the resources to make a major gift. Right. And, and, and you'll hear people say, uh, we, we still want them to make a, a, a modest gift that's important to them. It could be yeah. a small, uh, small item, but then you, you can't rely entirely on that because no. it's, it's unsustainable and it's not a good return on the effort you're putting in. Right. And I know this is a debate, a real hot debate right now in our field, right? 
where if we want to be truly representative, our organization is truly representative of the broader community, not just people sitting on our board today and yesterday, but really tomorrow, then we had better find ways to not just open the doors to people and hope they'll come through, but really make a, a concerted effort to reach out to all the communities of interest who care about the same things. So all of that's true. But most of those people, I don't care what our organization is, where it's geographically located, or what all those constituencies look like, 99% of those people um, would love to, to interact with us in some way if we're sensitive to them, but they won't have a lot of resources to give because while we would all like to see a more equitable world, it does not currently exist. There's only 1% of the population, uh, or less than that, really, that have significant resources that are going to help us through a capital campaign. And that's going to be somewhere between, depending upon its size, 95, 97% of the money coming from fewer than two and a half to 1% of our uh, constituency. We've got to find those people and then show love to the rest. But those people are going to be the bulwark of anything we do. Right. And in, and in this case, when we're looking at how do I find donors, we are really focusing on financial donors. It is worth saying that there are people who donate their time that we call volunteers and there are people um, who donate their expertise. We call them partners or board members or 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 advisories uh, yes. folks. But um, really what we're, we're talking about in this in this particular episode is is how do I find financial donors, money donors? Right. Yeah, a absolutely. And, and they do tend to come in very specific pockets, right? So in the United States, we're looking at people who have one of really six characteristics, generally. So they're going to be um, uh, people who have given to us significantly over time. Um, that's one easy way to figure it out. Um, it, it's a soft indicator, but it's a good one. Uh, people who are um, uh, owning significant real estate, usually about $2 million dollars plus or multiple properties in excess of $2 million in value. Um, multiple property owners are particularly important. Um, you have individuals who are um, owners of private companies. And, and the way I like to look at that is not just any private company, because there are 28 plus million private companies in the United States alone, but right. rather the companies that do in excess of maybe 10 million in revenue. And the people and the people of the company are maybe over 45. These are general benchmarks. They're not perfect for everybody. They're not but perfect, right. the kind of people who are going to tend to transition, sell the company, uh, and give it to their their children if they if the children want it. And often they won't. So it'll be a matter of a sale or a merger. And that's a liquidity. Yeah. Right. So you've got those, and then you have another couple of things. People who are um, known donors or uh, not just a philanthropy, but political donors. And we can talk more about that because that's complicated, but also very important. And then finally, um, uh, people who are insiders in the stock market. Um, and that's a very small population. It's probably fewer than uh, a million people going back to 1985. But those people can be especially liquid. And there's a general perception that everybody knows who they are. Therefore, we shouldn't look for them because they're besieged. And it's just completely absurd. They're just like the rest of us. They're, they're trying to figure out how to go from yesterday to tomorrow so they just might have a little more money than we do. And, um, but they're still trying to figure out how to pay for lunch and how to pay for retirement, what to do with their kids. So, they, but they have something that many of us don't. Uh, they have a large security asset and it tends to outperform the rest of us by historically 11% a year. So you find an insider in the stock market and you've got someone who tends to do better with their stock. And those people, that small pool, they might own as much as, I don't know, it depends upon the year, it's it 30% plus of the market. 
right? So wow. over 50% of the stock in a country is owned by fewer than, I think, 1% of the population in the United States. So there are a lot of stockholders, but most um, are the people who are buying a few shares through Robinhood. It's, and it's a bit like dollars. <laughs> the yeah. people who own the dollars, <laughs> the people who yes. own the stocks. <laughs> right. So it's a, it's a small, small group of, 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 of wealth uh, characteristics. Um, well, was there a last one, a sixth? Sorry? Was there a sixth one, the last one? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So that's, I was forgetting. So uh, foundation and, and uh, nonprofit board members. Ah, right. Okay. And there's, there's a crossover between all these things, but we can't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure there is. So, you know, you find one and it might lead you to others. So you said when people ask you this question, how do I find donors? The typical response is to ask them a series of questions. Right. Uh, what sort of questions uh, pop immediately to mind are the first indications that, that uh, you want from those folks? Right. Uh, pretty basic stuff. Like what kind of donors are you looking for? What are you looking for them to do? Um, uh, and, then, and then there are some technical questions like, how many people are in your constituent file? How long have they been in there? Um, are, you know, what, uh, what's the historical giving pattern? How often do you ask people to give? Do you have a large project you want people to support? Um, it, it, are you talking about unrestricted giving or for a project? Um, are you looking for just their money or do you want them to be involved? Because this is, this is another tricky part of this whole thing is that I know that we need money to do what we do. But how many people really want to make a significant investment? In other words, take money away from their kids mm-hmm. and give it to an organization to do some work that's going to benefit the future. If they don't feel like they have a voice, not, not a voice where they can dictate the terms of what we do, because we don't want that from any donor anywhere at any time. But if we don't want them to be some kind of partner with us, why in the world should they give? I mean, it's sort of like a basic cu- of customer service. If we walk into pick your favorite store. I don't care if it's Dollar General or Apple. You know, you'd expect to be treated like a human being. And it's weird in our field in that we view often um, donors in one of two ways, either like, oh, they're the most wonderful people on earth and we should do everything for them. I don't think that happens too often, but it does. Or the other is, well, it's just money. And I think both are unfortunate because they're just people like us, but they do have more money than we do. And if we want to invite them to participate and make a future with us, then we should treat them as human beings. Well, that's I, I, I'm funny you mentioned that phrase because that's the one I, that I, I sort of bang on to people about is that with donors, you're inviting them to participate in the way that you address the social problem. That that's what right. you're asking for. You want them right. to invest, whether it's five bucks or you know five thousand. You're asking okay. them to participate yeah. uh, in, in 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 one way or another. And it does, you know, I do get the looks askance, like, hmm, never thought of it that way. <laughs> and uh, you know, I sort of, I, I won't, I don't say this because it would be rude, as you suggest. Like, well, yeah. how did you think? <laughs> you know? What did you think was going to happen when they gave you? Yeah, that's that's that's, that's, that's right. So do people struggle with some of those basic questions, therefore revealing that really it's not a well-thought strategy? It's just a, I know I'm supposed to have donors, so I'm looking for them and I'm not sure where to start type of thing. Or people who've been at this for a while and just running uh, into brick walls as they see it and they just need uh, a helping hand with maybe one or two of those things that you asked about. Um, It seems to be on a continuum, doesn't it? with every organization and, and the different people in the organization. I mean, we're all learning, 
if we had a chance to talk more outside the box of this this meeting, and we will, um, then I'd be learning from you, and maybe I'd have something to offer uh, to you. And it's the same way with these staff members in these organizations. So the the more nascent organizations, at least in my experience, they do need to um, have the experience of going beyond, let's say, institutional giving, which many start with, um, and then partnering with a few donors who make more significant investments in some projects, have that experience of really working with them, not being either subservient to them or dismissive of them, but a true kind of partnership arrangement with people who care about the same things, where the projects are driven by the staff and the board, and but the donors are a voice in maybe you know, some kind of what the future vision might look like. And they're investing in that. The return on the investment then, of course, is does it happen? Does it come to fruition? Or do, are they seeing the markers or in business terms, the KPIs towards that future vision, whether that's feeding the whole community or whatever. So those things for a younger organization or more nascent organization, small organization might be more challenging if they haven't gone through that cycle of building those relationships and having some of them, frankly, fail. But right. failure is okay. I mean, it's, it's just another part of, of learning. And, but then you have big organizations, and I don't know if you've experienced this, Kev, but I've seen it where the large organizations also uh, have difficulty changing. So they get into a pattern of behavior, and they're very smart people, and they just do things one way. But then, you know, you, you introduce them their idea, and you and I are both here on this platform. We've been doing this stuff for a while, so we're comfortable working in digital media when it works for us. Um, but, uh, but then we'll work with people where doing an ask on, you know, whatever, a tablet, what, what is, you know, you can't do that. Or, um, we don't really need social media. This was the thing before and before that email, uh, that's just frivolous. Um, and now it's, uh, when I have conversations with people about things like TikTok and they're kind of say, oh, that's just for kids. And I'm thinking it's, that's hundreds of millions of people. Or on Twitch, hundreds of millions of people. And so today, little Isha will raise probably, I don't know what she's going to raise, but my guess is at least a hundred grand or something for St. Jude's doing streaming of probably Minecraft or something. I mean, we have to be aware of the changes. So whether we're a young organization trying to figure out or a more mature organization, I hope we're going to leave at least 10 to 20% of our room for change in our budget, in our staffing, and in our thinking. Because if we don't, we're going to miss these opportunities, including the opportunity to make diversity, which we all talk about now, but nobody really defines. In other words, really making real diversity, not performative. No, um, yeah, the only way is actually budget. <laughs> you know, that's the only way right. to happen. Yeah, I like the twenty percent for uh, for something dif- different. If you don't invest in learning, it doesn't. It does sort of happen by accident, but but yeah. not in not in the most productive way, uh, <laughs> and and in the same way that you would expect programs to evolve and to learn and to engage with their communities or their recipients or beneficiaries uh, in in the way that is most relevant to those people and therefore is changing with the way society generally changes, adoption of technology and so on. Why would you not do that on the fundraising, the revenue side? Uh, You know, being stuck in your ways doesn't make seem to make much sense. Right. Uh, And it happens to everybody. I just went through this week. uh, We started by talking about how so much of this is virtual now, but I'm, I'm actually at a physical meeting in Baltimore with a whole group of people, a company. They're all coming together. I mean, 63 people in a room. 
And so for some of us, that's now we're accustomed to that, even though we're being careful. And for others, it's terrifying, right? We're, we're in the middle of Delta. Um, but in the middle of all that, the subterranean level of how business operations work, we spent time earlier in the week going through a closet at one business and going through materials, many of them in print, many of them printed by the thousands for things that now are obsolescent because either branding has changed or thinking has changed or our environment for customers has changed. But the reason why I'm mentioning this is because this change, you're right, we have to, be, we have to make sure that there's room in our heads, in our budgets, in our time for continually improving what we do. Not because IBM told us to do it or something or Six Sigma. I mean, right. that's all fine. But just because it works. If we make that room for good ideas, hopefully it means we're better listeners. And and I know you didn't ask this, but I have a feeling we'd be in, in accordance on this too, which is that in major gift fundraising, no matter how much we know, no matter where we find donors, no matter how much money they have, and all these other things we can talk about today with finding donors, it's all important. Fundamentally, I think the real way, re, way we raise money is by being quiet and listening to other people. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's that's. I always uh, put the very first uh, stage of the donor journey. Uh, you know, it's 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 people talk about awareness, and it's right. easy to to translate that into oh, I'm communicating, so I have to send messages out, I have to billboard what we do, I have to do all this, you know, and show up. And and the the funny example is if you went to a, a, a party or a, or a convention or something and you're chatting to, to people in a small cluster, uh, you'd have a normal conversation. And if it was appropriate to raise something, you would, you would raise it in an appropriate and contextual way right. that people would say, okay, I'm interested or I'm not. You wouldn't stick up a billboard and go, <laughs> this is what we do. <laughs> this is our mission. You know, it would yeah. just, it would seem ridiculous, but yet that's why we, we often try and build awareness, which doesn't make any sense. What you would do, really is you need to be listening and that's the heart of any successful or effective conversation it's got to be that that listening um and so i I, i'm not surprised we got here i I assumed at some point over our conversation you know how do you find donors as well you you engage in lots and lots of conversations which means lots and lots of listening because the 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 the, the objection to lots of conversation is oh i I get tired of talking and I'm not, you know, I'm nervous or, I, you know, I've got all these issues around meeting lots of people and COVID and this and that. So just listen, <laughs> just listen. There are opportunities to listen to people all the time about everything. And, um, and that's something that I'm constantly trying to remind myself to do at the smallest possible level. So if someone is uh, talking about anything from what they experienced last week at their house to um, something they're thinking about for their for their work next year, the trouble they had with their colleagues, the you know, what the weather was like. I really don't care what it is because there's something in there that they're trying to message. And unlike the broadcasting you were talking about that we all have done so so often and so badly, that people are I think that people are hungry to connect with other human beings and just be seen as real. And if, yeah. and if we, if we are not, I mean, fundraisers especially have this kind of power uh, to be able to give people the space to reveal their greatest vulnerabilities so that we can help them to achieve the thing that they are vocalizing is important to them. And as long as it's well aligned with our mission, everything's is groovy. Um, so when we're trying to sell, it's it's the opposite of what we need to do. 
Yeah. Yeah. It is not, it is not sales. It's, 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 it's as a sales, it's really like you're bringing people to you in a, in an, in an invitation sort Long of way rather than trying to push something towards them. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So w- where do you feel that people get uh, most hung up in when you've had this, this conversation with people about uh, asking them a, a set of questions that you shared when they asked, how do I find donors? And you probe a little bit. What seems to be a, a common uh, obstacle or, or area that people seem to get stuck repeatedly? Um, there are so many. Uh, but w- the biggest one is, uh, is, I think, the psychological hurdle. But then it's often masked as a technical or budgetary one. So it's, um, and so if you don't mind, I'll just you know, use another old Yeah, story. yeah. Um, when I first, uh, got into this field, I was, as I mentioned, I was giving away money and I was really young to do it. Um, so I was 24 and, uh, I was at the national endowment for the arts and it was a great experience. Um, it was a $2 million that I was responsible for managing, not deciding on, thankfully it was, these were peer panel review process. So I'm not saying I picked the people because I didn't. Um, but it was a great experience and I had a lot of interaction by phone where people didn't know what age I was. So it was, it was a very different kind of experience anonymity. Anyway, I came out of that and worked as a fundraiser and, um, and then, uh, went into services pretty soon afterwards. And one of my first appointments was with someone who had been a grantee back when I was at the NEA and they wouldn't have known me really or anything. So that's not a part of that story. But the reason I'm mentioning this is I had kind of revered this organization because I saw them as being so inventive and doing all this great work and they had received grants and they had all these wonderful people serving on the boards. And, and, um, anyway, so I was selling a screening service at the time for a little, you know, of a company, uh, which was later part of Thompson financial Thompson Reuters. And it was all securities data, which is how I got involved in a lot of this stuff. And so I went to them and I visited and I ran their file, which is to say they had five or 10,000 records, I don't know, something like that of people who had gone to shows and given a small donation, whatever. We ran it through the service. We brought it back to them. We showed them the data. So the technical wasn't an issue. Sometimes you talk to them and the, one of the hurdles is, I don't know how to get my data out. That's really, you can figure that out. Right. Another is, um, I don't know how to put it back in. That's another one that, that's not really an issue. Somebody can help you with that. And the vendor should. Um, yes. Then another part is just, you know, getting people to recognize what they don't want to recognize. So this is the big one. This is the psychological one. So I brought back the data to them. I showed them all this stuff. There were all these people in there who were pretty rich in a small file. They had gone and bought tickets to shows and they sat there watching stuff that most of us would scratch our heads and say, what does this mean? Okay, so it's that experimental. So if somebody is willing to spend money to see that, they care. So, and this would be true of anything that's a little bit uh, off the grid, right? Whether it's feeding the houseless or whatever it is, if you're doing something that's a little bit you know, hard, then you bet if somebody's giving you 25 bucks, they care. Anyway, so we ran the file. We had all these people. I showed them all the data. I said, it's only going to cost whatever it was, $5,000, and you can have this. And they said, um, well, you know, we could do that. We could spend the $5,000 like this. Or we could spend $5,000 writing a few grant proposals. And I think we'd rather do that. And I asked why. And they said, well, because 
I really don't want to talk to these rich people. Well, points and for honesty. I, I, yeah, it's just, I think that barrier is in our mind. I think that's the biggest one. Are we willing to change and open the doors and share power? Oh, is that you think the it was a it was a power sharing issue rather than than I just don't want to share space with 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 this these type of people? Yeah, well, it's probably like again on a continuum. So it right. might be you don't want to literally share space. So you know, give them a seat at every show for donating a higher amount of money. I don't know what it is, but I think at some level they were uncomfortable with having, um, you know, any kind of perception that they might not be able to completely control the vision and program of the organization, but they should, they should be able to control that as long as in fact, they recognize that they themselves are operating a public good. Right. The that's the, that's the deal for the tax exemption, right? That, that's right. Uh, I mean, it's interesting because you know, we, we talk about the relationships and I wonder uh, we do have in our field uh at times very stark at times less so distinction between the the programmatic side and the and the fundraising side and uh, certainly in large organizations that becomes more real and they do attract slightly different individuals people have different sort of career paths through them uh and and uh you you know i'm, I'm sure you're, you're like me you've you've known uh executive directors and and program directors who've spend their whole time in the program side and really don't like talking to uh, uh, wealthy donors or prospective donors because they sort of feel that it's hard to have a, a genuine, authentic relationship with someone who doesn't really share any experiences that I do. And they, we live in very, very different worlds. And there's a there's a there's a psychological barrier there, too, isn't there? Yeah. And and, uh, and you know, I wonder, I think we can get beyond that. Um, I, I know it takes work, but it's sort of like talking to anybody whose experience either is different or you think might be different. If we can just put aside some of our um, kind of uh, inherent biases or prejudices about people whose experience might be perceived as different from our own. And uh, there's a there's a show on Netflix now, um, which is uh, The Chair. I don't know if you've seen it about the chair of an English department and. Anyway, um, it's a comedy, but there's this whole, there are two parts that have to do with philanthropy in this show, in this brief series that are very funny. And one is about uh, David Duchovny, the actor uh, best known for The X-Files and California. Yes. And he's there and they bring him in because they want a star uh, who's going to um, be able to bring in a lot of students. But butts and seats as the dean says so there's this whole thing about david duchovny and by the way david duchovny does a great job of kind of spoofing himself um in this in this series uh, part of it is in the end the chair of the department saying well you know we really need to do serious work so how about it's that if we make this the david duchovny program and you give us so much money and then you get a chair so you don't have to rewrite the paper you wrote in the 1980s with harold bloom at yale so it was kind of funny because that seemed a little more real to me because it was a real conversation between the character of the chair of the English department and the character, uh, the fictionalized version of David Duchovny, having uh, a conversation where at first she's walking through this guy's house where he's an indoor pool and he's, you know, playing a guitar in his bedroom. And it, you know, so they're, in other words, worlds apart. 
But then they can have that conversation. But then there's another part where it's the dean and the, don't, the trustee and the chair of the program. And she's the one who sets all the wheels in motion, the trustee, by saying, uh, you know, this is what we, the kind of thing we need to do. The reason why I'm mentioning this is because, at least in our minds, that fictionalized version of our donor relationships, uh, the way they're portraying the trustee is that one where, oh, I have to be careful because I might lose my donor if I say the wrong thing. And right. I know that's a real thing, but it, we have to be willing to uh, say honest things and we have to have enough respect for our donors, regardless of whether they have $100 million or $10 million, to treat them as fellow human beings instead of either, again, either revering them or denigrating them. They are not different people. They're just people who have more resources. So we see, I stop thinking about it as a power imbalance and start treating as family. Yeah, I love that you, you say that that, uh, be, that that honesty is a way of, of showing respect, whereas a, a lot of people would would question that or feel differently about it and that's saying if we're if we're too honest we might lose them if we say what we really think we might lose them if we say what our vision really is we might lose them but then Uh, shouldn't we i mean if we're saying something and then it's really it really doesn't work for the other person they're not a good investor in our program right we're not a good and that takes and, and that's a, the sort of last thing I wanted to, to, to touch on is your take on uh, the scarcity mindset, uh, which we, you know, you, we hear a lot about. And, and this question of how do I find donors? You're, you're almost guaranteed that there's some level, again, on a continuum of scarcity mindset wrapped up in there. And, and, and the fear of, oh, I can't lose this donor. It took us years to find this donor who, who's important to us and is a significant part of our budget. We could possibly replace it. Uh, that that contribution if we if we lost it and there's the, that that is a, a real genuine uh, fear. Um, so tell me tell me a little bit about your perspective on on the scarcity mindset uh, and and how you come across it with this the searching and cultivating donors. It, it, yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, I try to again just be mindful of the fact that my attitude is not the same as necessarily everyone else's attitude. So I have fear like everybody else. And I think fear is the operative part of this. That yes. if, if I'm afraid to fly. I don't, uh, well, not so much anymore, but now I tolerate it. But I don't like flying. And so I had to deal with that. Um, I, a lot of people are afraid of public speaking. I, uh, that's something I enjoy doing. And a lot of people avoid that. Um, so there are different fears that we all have, whether it's spiders or donors, right? People have a fear of something. Um, so getting beyond it is important. And I think the first part to getting comfortable with it is to know more. So it goes back to the first part of our conversation. What can we learn about what we're looking for doing our self inventory? What are the, what are the kinds of donors that we need and want, um, that would make good partners. And then let's try to be broad minded about that. So we're not in, uh, restricting ourselves. And then the second part is, what can we learn about them? What are the resources and tools we can, so we can really know them? This would be sort of like going through the process of getting over your fear of flying. You never really get over it, but you do get comfortable with it when you understand what flying is really about and what turbulence really is. So that you can you control some of your emotional response to unpleasant uh, or um, unpredictable circumstances and instead mm-hmm. find some degree of 
uh, pleasure in that pain. <laughs> More like um, Laurence Olivier famously uh, having to throw up before every performance. I'm not suggesting fundraisers should throw up before every donor visit, but I do think it would be important if we got comfortable with our discomfort but not try to seek discomfort, which, which is a place where I have some disagreement with some of our colleagues in the field. I don't think our purpose yeah, yeah. is that. But I do think that we can, one way we can do that besides intelligence, right? Donor intelligence and self-awareness is a third piece, which is to um, make sure that we uh, utilize the skills of uh, diplomacy and listening so that we don't, we don't necessarily find ourselves in a position where it is so beyond our control that we fear the, the end result. If we are truly listening more than we talk in our field, then I mm-hmm. think that we're going to run our, our risk of losing people all over the place, like on a battlefield, is actually quite small. Maybe the greater risk is having to serve all the donors we find. But that's a topic of another discussion. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's the, the, the way you go about this is is. Uh, important when when people pursue or, to, or cultivate uh, for for quite a long time, uh, yeah. you know, at some point they've got to recognize this person is either going to convert to a to, to becoming a donor of some sort or or, or not, yeah. and 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 if you approach that with scarcity, you want to cling to every single one, uh, perhaps longer than is necessary. But if you 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 sort of take a different approach to it, where as you said, donors are everywhere. You, you know, be very clear about who you are and what you stand for and have those conversations. And eventually you will you will attract the people for whom the, those messages resonate. Right. Yeah. For me, the glass is always more than half full. Um, so that's that's why I know that that's my bias. That's my prejudice. That's that's my uh, weakness and strength. And and for other people, I totally get it. It's scary. You might lose something. You can't get it back. Uh, the world is falling apart. We, we gotta, we gotta just be rational enough about that part of it. Know enough about what we want and what others have, um, and what we're trying to do, and where there's a marriage between those things to try and get past that fear. And then, um, and if we're really weird about scarcity, we'll just work our tails off. So, frankly, in a tactical sense, our pipeline is sufficient to our purpose. It, it, the biggest risk, the real risk, I think is that we don't have a sufficient pipeline to carry out the work we want to do tomorrow. Because if we're still working on yesterday, we are in big trouble financially. And, and especially in times like this, the organizations that did well in this last year and a half, and there are some that did brilliantly, didn't do so just by accident. They did so because they had done some planning and then they continued to work throughout all this. Every organization can do that. They just have to be committed. And there is a there is a bit of a numbers game in the in the in the notion of a pipeline, how many people you're actually speaking to and so on. I sort of tend to think of it as a sort of filtering mechanism. Uh, If you really think it's scarcity and you're looking for a needle in a haystack, for example, you better get busy (laughs) and start getting through some hay pretty quickly and not be not take it personally. They're just people who are uh, might be lovely in every way that you can think of, but don't want to give to you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's something like 250,000 people on the skin of the earth, according to, you know, Credit Suisse, Merrill Lynch, Capgemini, and all those groups that have over $50 million in investable assets. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot, especially if we only have a quarter of them here in the United States. But those, that's 
people with over $50 million in investable assets. And my question is, is there somebody like that in your universe and you have knocked on their door? Did you not send them a letter because somebody told you, oh, we don't do that anymore? Did you not pick up the phone and just say, hey, how you doing? I mean, there are very easy things we can do. So when it comes down to pipeline management, that is more like sales in the best sense of the sales word. And we should be doing that. And that's something that our, our databases allow us and, and help us to do. It's something that we can teach our staffs to do. And it's something, frankly, our donors deserve. Um, and my wife is from Japan. And so something we always joke about is the difference between customer service here and there. And this is not to say one place is better than another. Just every place is different. But one of the things that's really different when you go over there is um, if you go into a bank and then you do your transaction and then you leave, um, they thank you. And here we tend to thank the people at the bank. Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't be thanking a teller for doing their work. We should. But rather that we have kind of inverted the relationship um, where uh, the person who holds the, the money is, is king as the customer. I think we ought to find a way to, to create a better balance. I think nonprofits are able to do that, and we're able to do it through our donor relationships. Um, again, not just doing everything transactionally um, uh, or everything, just a, a tiny little pipeline, but a better management of a system of that so that it's that haystack. You're constantly processing the hay. You're finding the needles. You're putting those in the portfolios. Now we've totally mixed our metaphors. And then you're continually making sure that there's a touch point with each of those people. So when the time is right for them and for you, not for one, not for the other, but for both, then we really have a marriage of opportunity and we can make sure that things get done that need to get done. When we don't do that, those things don't get funded. People don't eat. Cancer doesn't get cured. So while I think this stuff is a lot of fun and funny a lot of the time, I think it's desperately serious. And I think we should take it seriously. And the best and easiest place to do that is by just finding who aligns with their mission, you doing that research daily, and then picking up the damn phone and finding out how people are doing. Yeah, reducing it to some simple actions that you can repeat over and over and over again, and they will uh, yield results. And then the same applies to, to finding donors of other things besides money, your, your volunteers, uh, finding eventually your board members. I mean, if, if there's a secondary question after how do I find donors, it's how do I find board members? And, uh, you know, the, the, it's, it's really very, very similar processes, although you're looking for something slightly different. But, yes. but the idea of, 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 this, of this question of search is um, – uh, is similar, but based on, on on your perception of what you think the world is 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 out right outside your door, right? Right, right. And Kevin, I do want to say something, that, and this might sound like a commercial, but it's really not into because um, I am affiliated with one of the screening companies. But I would say this would be true of any screening company. So, if there's uh, if anybody listens to this now or in the future, and they say, okay, but really, how do I do this? because I don't have a staff to do it. And most of us don't, or they don't have the time to do it. And most of them don't. Then there are various companies that can do a, a screening, which is where they take a file, they run it through a process and they can return results. But what many people either don't know until they, you know, are, are investing in the companies um, is that um, all those companies will do a test. Some of them will even test a substantial, if not the entirety of, of the file and I really strongly recommend that, not just to compare products, but to compare our uh, impression of what's in our database, who those people are, what they care about, how much resource they have, what they give to currently, to what is reality. 
So not, not just running the people that we know through a test, but running a sample of the file. Because um, I just heard another story just yesterday where someone told me about how they had identified a major uh, Microsoft donor for one of the universities when they were on the staff. This was a number of years ago. But it was because they had themselves worked at Microsoft. They knew that person had married somebody who was a senior executive. That person retained their maiden name. Um, and the only way that they knew in the file about this was she just put her memory together with these people that were in the file. So she made that mental connection. And then that person turned into a $30 million gift. So it was wow. a, they, they developed a process, part technical, part um, human, where everybody knew what we were looking for. Again, the first, you know, let's figure out what we want. And then they applied the data to it. And then they had real human conversations internally and externally that invited people to give. This, it does work. So it was a great example of that, that uh, an appropriate balance of what's routine and technical and, 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 and automated. And then when you actually have to humanize it and be real and have those authentic human conversations. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, you know, I don't want to oversell the sales analogy here because um, I do think that uh, there are good, there are good, there are good sales approaches and there are approaches that clearly don't work in our field. But some of the technical aspects of what we're talking about is just a, a business process that we can apply to what we do to be more effective and more sensitive, uh, both to our staffs and our boards, but also to our donors and prospective donors. Um, but then there are some things that we do that are unique to us. We really do sit down and listen, almost, almost like a therapist would. And I think that's a unique gift we have to offer. And I, I don't think if you go in to buy a Tesla, that's the conversation. I mean, maybe people yeah. start revealing why they want to drive a fast car, but I think mainly people want to buy a car. And this is different. If somebody's sitting down with us and talking about how they want to be remembered by their grandchildren, that's a different conversation. That's a gift to us and to them. And, and it's not transactional. I mean, I think that's the that that's the key thing. It is it is not transactional. I think that's what we we always learn is that the transaction doesn't doesn't work. And the irony, of course, is that the people who you know have this fear, the scarcity mindset, you know, almost like to want to dart in and out and get it over quick which is almost by definition transactional. It's like the, the, yeah. the slow burn um, has to start somewhere. And it, uh, that's just often the way it feels. Do you run into this a lot when you talk with people in the field, just being afraid that there's not enough out there? There's not enough out there. Uh, and, and also wanting, wanting uh, a quick answers or quick steps or things that are not, not uh, elongated. And uh, and I and I think you've you've got to ask yourself: Are you prepared to have genuine relationships with the people you're asking to invest in your mission and your programming, uh, or do you really just want them to to give you money? Do you want them to be sort of anonymous? And um, that that latter, if you pursue the latter approach, there's no 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 surprise that you find <laughs> that's a scarcity mindset. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a guy on um, David Lively who's up at um, I think it's at the University of Illinois. And, I, and David, if you hear this, I'm sorry if I got the wrong institution, but he's he's a brilliant uh, fundraiser, and um, he did a session for a series that I do for Donor Search called the Mastermind Series, which was a webinar on um, portfolio management, which sounds terribly dull, but for anybody listening to this, if you need one you know little session in addition to everything you're doing, Kev. Uh, to help somebody figure out how to build a business process for doing the things we're talking about. David outlines yes. that 
really clearly and specifically. So there aren't many things that are the one, two, three, how to get it done that are really that valuable, but he does it. And one of the key aspects of what he's talking about is um, we don't need a portfolio of 150 to 300 people or more. We need a smaller portfolio. Whoops, it looks like I disappeared. Um, we need a smaller portfolio uh, where we have uh, more engagement with them. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is because it may elongate the amount of time we spend with these individuals, but it means larger investments by these individuals when they occur. So the, the, both on the bottom line and for the relationship, we benefit by taking time. And if we took that much time, buddy, of course, we'd never raise anything. But if we try to go really fast with everything, we never raise very much. So it's really about, again, thinking through what we want to do, uh, getting the data to do it, and then um, right. uh, having a flight plan. And, the, you know, the translation to the sales uh, culture is if – you, if we know through for-profit commercial sales that there's anywhere, pick a number, six to 12 touches with the customer before they they are prepared to uh, exec, uh, execute a transaction, if we're really looking at a deeper investment type relationship, it's surely got to be many more touches than that. And, and you know, when you, when you apply that to the number of people you're trying to teach, you know, you, you, you can, you can work out a process and, and, and how many people you can actually have those genuine conversations with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We can only manage so much. I think there's a reason why we only have seven numbers in a typical phone number here in the States, you know, it's only <laughs> yeah. um, but besides, yeah, you know, we, we, we spend more time naturally with the people who are closest to us. I mean, that's just what we do as human beings. And so wouldn't it be naturally the same thing with what we do as professionals? One, one would expect. Okay. Um, thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate it. Thank you for um, persevering through uh, the, the camera issues. I'm sure uh, obviously it doesn't play out on, on, on the podcast, which should be uh, available soon. Folks can watch this on uh, LinkedIn and YouTube. Uh, and I will whack it up into the uh, Facebook group as a standalone video, although the, uh, the, the live didn't work, but that's okay. Um, just uh, as we come to a, a close, Jay, can you remind people where they can find you online if you're happy for people to approach you with specific questions and reaching out and anything that you offer in terms of masterminds or programs and stuff? Sure. Uh, absolutely. Uh, if, uh, if anyone wants to reach me, you can find me uh, at, um, on LinkedIn, of course, um, Jay Frost. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter. My Twitter handle there is Gordon J. Frost. Um, and uh, I'm also available um, through Facebook at Frost on Fundraising. I do have an association with Donor Search, um, which is a, a company that does a lot of great donor intelligence work, ranging from some of the things I was talking about on uh, wealth analytics, but also especially on philanthropy, lots of information on people's giving and increasingly on artificial intelligence and fundraising, really interesting stuff. Um, yeah. And uh, Nathan Chappelle's work there is, is really extraordinary. Um, and that's all available through DonorSearch at DonorSearch.net. Um, and in fact, if you want to, you can reach me there at J at DonorSearch.net. Um, uh, and uh, I'm familiar with other firms, including Brian Lacing Associates and others. But um, if you're interested in, in the kind of conversations that we're having here uh, or and do you want to uh, add to that, um, the Mastermind series is 
is our offering. They're non-commercial programs like this one that allow people to have a conversation or to share uh, through a CFRE accredited program. And we have a podcast series where people talk about their lives in fundraising. So all that's available at donorcoach.net. Lots of ways you're going to touch. Thank you so much, Jay. Uh, this has been episode 50 of the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. Uh, and uh, we will see you next week with uh, John Williams from Life That Counts. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. My guest today was Jay Frost, who you can find on LinkedIn, Twitter, Clubhouse. This podcast has been expertly produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio, making professional podcasting easy. Go to podproaudio.com. You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com because good causes deserve better results.